0: You're listening to the East Side Baptist Church Sermon podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now enjoy today's sermon. Luke chapter 11 is where we're going to be, and uh, you if you once you find it, if you don't mind standing, out of respect of God's word, Luke chapter 11 want to mention two more things that I failed to mention. If you need outreach maps, we aren't meeting uh, for outreach on Thursday nights, uh, specifically having a meeting, but I do have maps on Wednesday nights. So if you would like a map, um, I've got some, and we'll continue to do those as long as we won't freeze to the porches whenever we knock on a door. So um, you are welcome to take those and finish them uh, when the weather permits, and uh, I would encourage you as a family... Each family, I would encourage you to maybe pick one of those up and then just do it as you can, and uh, it will, we'll do it that way for now. We'll have some more opportunities for more outreach-type activities during the winter, I think, um, that I'll, I'll be talking about a little bit more in the coming weeks that I, I hope that you'll choose to be involved in. And uh, some of that has to do with discipleship and our desire to not just go and invite, but also then the ones that are here or, com- ...or thinking about coming on a regular basis than to take some of those under our wing... ...and take them through some material that could be a real help to them in their growth as a Christian. And I think that's a big part of outreach or the Great Commission that we might neglect sometimes... ...is not, not just the reaching, but also then the teaching and training and discipling. That part is important as well. And it can happen on Sunday, but I'm telling you, it really happens when there's a relationship involved between two people... And this one is saying, here's, where, here's the information, hey, where, where were you on Sunday, or where were you Wednesday night, or did you read your Bible this week? I mean, those are the kind of things that when you're first growing as a Christian are extremely helpful, that accountability and that, those, those relationships, I'd love to start building some of those as we disciple those that come. The second thing I want to mention is uh, I'm just grateful for the fellowship on Sunday night and the pastor's appreciation uh, not just the fellowship, but also the cards and the thoughts that you wrote down and gave to us, and the even gifts. I'm just grateful for that, and uh, you have definitely made us feel welcome here. We know that we're loved and, and appreciated, and I sure am thankful for it. And it's not just us that gets a blessing, and I don't want to sound self-serving when I say this, but it's not just us that gets a blessing when you show appreciation. I think God blesses a church. When they take those those opportunities to to be thankful and express those things to their pastor, and so it really is a matter of obedience to to show honor to those that are in spiritual leadership over you and uh, and I just want you to know we 're thankful, but also think God is, is is thankful, and he looks at it with favor that you would take the time to do those things so we would, I just wanted to say thank you for that tonight luke eleven we 'll begin reading in verse one, and we' we'll, we're going to read further than we have. Usually, just because Christ's instruction goes longer than we, have, than we realize, maybe, uh, in that his instruction on prayer really is the first 13 verses of Luke 11, not just the first four. So I'll begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 13. It says, And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, When ye pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done as in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend, and shall go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves, And I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for, for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? How much more? How much more will God provide gifts for us when we ask him? I'm grateful for the truth that we're going to look at tonight. You can be seated and uh, we'll get into this. Over the last few months, we've looked at the model prayer of Christ here in Luke 11, as, as you know, if you come on Wednesday nights. And we've gotten through the instruction on how to pray. And a couple of weeks ago, it culminated with the phrase, Thine is the kingdom and the power and glory forever. Amen. And you say, well, I didn't see that here in Luke 11 because Luke, Luke didn't record that part, but Matthew did over in Matthew 6. And we're not going to go back and look at it. But I just want to remind you about that last phrase that we looked at. Thine is the kingdom. Thine is the power. Thine is the glory. We pray thine is the kingdom because God is the sovereign ruler of the universe. And it's good for us when we pray to be reminded of who he is compared to who we are. Not only does that help us to be submissive to him because of his position, but it will also help us to trust him for his provision. If I'm praying to the king then I can trust him. If I'm praying to the king, then I have no problem submitting to him because he rules over everything. He's the sovereign, and it's good for me to look into who God is when I pray because it reminds me of all that I lack. Thine is the kingdom. And then he says, thine is the power. And when you think about God, you think about him being omnipotent or all-powerful. And so if he is all-powerful, that means he has all the power in the universe, then let me just ask you, how much does that leave over for the rest of us? If he has all power, then I have no power. And it's good when I pray to be reminded of the fact that God has it all, and I am praying to someone more capable of answering my requests than anybody else. He has all power. I need that reminder about who God is. Thine is the kingdom, thine is the power, and thine is the glory. When we pray for God's glory, it helps keep, keep things in perspective that everything in our lives is supposed to point to God. Everything, all, of, all that I think, all that I feel, all that I say, all that I do, it should first be concerned with what is God's view of it, and second, how does it reflect on God? Everything that we do in our lives should point to God. It's all about God. Like John the Baptist said in John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease, that includes everything in our lives including prayer. And we have a tendency in our prayer to make our prayer lives about us. But our first consideration is God's perspective on everything that we pray. And so just as a reminder of including that phrase in the in, in the instruction in Jesus's prayer, he was letting us know that we ought to be reminded of God's power, we ought to be reminded of God's sovereignty. We ought to be reminded of God's glory, and we should pray for it. Sometimes we just assume that we think that way, but when we pray for those things, it actually does align us to think that way. So rather than, though, ending the series with that phrase, I couldn't really get away with the rest of Luke chapter 11. And I thought I was done here, and we were going to move on to something different. But as I've been thinking about Luke 11 for so long, realizing that Jesus Christ doesn't end his instruction in verse 4, He actually carries it on in verse 5. And he very clearly, though, gives them the how-to, but his instruction continues. And he goes on, and he gives them a hypothetical situation. Now, we might would call this a parable in the Bible, where he gives a hypothetical situation. And he gives one to the disciples here in order to teach them uh, an important mindset when it comes to prayer. Let's look at verses five and six again. It says, and he said unto them, which of you shall have a friend and shall go unto him at midnight and say unto him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine in his journey has come to me and I have nothing to set before him. So Jesus Christ gives them the hypothetical situation. Again, it's a parable. And he basically says, let's just say that you have a surprise guest drop in on you unannounced really late one night. Well, first, let's not talk about how rude it seems that a friend would just show up at your doorstep at midnight, okay? So that that seems a little bit out of place for us. I don't know about for you. Maybe you're like, oh, that would be normal for us to have somebody knock on the door. But that wasn't that uncommon in, the, in those days. See, I was reading some commentators about this and trying to understand it. William Barclay says it was normal for travelers to journey late at night because they were trying to avoid the heat of the day. And it, I mean, they weren't, they weren't driving with uh, a vehicle and they didn't have air conditioning. They were more than likely usually walking everywhere they went. So if they're walking everywhere they go, it's not wise to travel in the middle of the afternoon in the heat of the day. So they would work, wait for the heat to get better. The sun goes down, it's cooler, and they would begin their journey since they were on foot. So a traveler then, here's the hypothetical, a traveler shows up to your door late at night And you don't think it's rude. You're not really put off at this because this isn't as uncommon as it would be for us. And actually in that culture, hospitality was a sacred duty. Hospitality was important in that culture. And I'm not gonna talk about this much, but hospitality I think probably is something that we should use as a ministry tool more than we do. To be hospitable, to to have people in our home to host people, we get so wrapped up in our lives and, and I 'm the same way we, we get busy, we have things to do, and it seems like we fill every moment of our day with something else, but i don 't know there may not be a more underutilized ministry opportunity in in reaching people than hospitality to just invite somebody to your home and have them come over. It just doesn 't happen like it used to happen well this is this is a surprise it 's late at night. And in that culture, rather than being annoyed, they likely would have been more embarrassed than anything because if they didn't have bread to feed, if they weren't prepared to be a good host, they would have been a little bit embarrassed. When you had someone come to your home, you were not only obligated to feed them, but you would feel obligated to give them an abundance you do. You wouldn't want them to come and we've got one slice of bread for all eight of us. Let's cut it up into small squares. No, you would have wanted to give them a lot. And so if someone shows up to your door, you would have felt bad that you weren't able to host them like you wanted to. My my mom kind of uh, is like this. Okay, My mom, you, you would have to know her, but we could literally show up at just about any time of the day. And she would have a, a meal in the freezer that could be completely ready in about 10 minutes for our whole family. I mean, it's amazing. You know, we'll walk in the door. She's like, oh, I didn't know you were coming. Oh, it's 530. I'm about to slaughter this side of beef. I, I, I can have ribeyes and T-bones within the hour. I mean, that's kind of how it is. It kind of blows your mind. She's always ready to host, and it seems like she can just throw something, something together and and that's just the way she operates. Well, that, that's kind of how it would have been then. It would not have been too surprising to have someone just drop in um, into your house, a, a friend, a guest. People back then didn't have the things ready like we do in that they weren't prepared for weeks out with all of their food. They would live day to day. So for us, you know, again, we've talked about the Costco culture where we have a refrigerator full and a freezer full and a deep freeze full and a pantry full of food and ready to go and we stock up for weeks or months on end. But in those days, it wouldn't have been quite as easy. First of all, they, they didn't have as e- an easy uh, way to store their food like we do in a refrigerator. And, and second, they would make the, the, the food day to day. So they would make the bread in those days. They would make it for the day. And so if if they didn't eat all of it, it would likely go bad, it would get stale, and then they've wasted the food. So it wasn't very common, though, although guests were common, it wasn't very common for them to have just a bunch of extra food in the kitchen ready to feed anybody that walks in the door. They couldn't just run to the store late at night and pick something up either. So a traveler showing up to your door would have created a sense of urgency in you due to the expectation of being hospitable. So at this point, you have a few options. Uh, One is to not be hospitable, and that wasn't an option. The second is to go and try to find some bread. So the natural then response at that point would be to go to your friend, somebody that you know, and knock on their door at midnight. So verse 7 says, you don't have the food to feed him. It says in verse 7, and he from within, after you've asked your friend for bread, shall answer and say, trouble me not. The door is now shut and my children are now, I'm sorry, my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. So you go to your friend's house. You don't have bread. You want to feed. You want to be hospitable. You go to your friend's house. It's late at night. You knock on his door and say, I have a friend He's a traveler. This was unexpected. They just showed up. I have nothing to feed them. I can't be hospitable. Do you have three loaves of bread that I can take and feed my guests with? Well, your friend inside the house knows that you would knock on it, not knock on his closed door late at night unless it was important, unless there was a sense of urgency. In my understanding, they were, in those days, much more open with each other and their doors would have been left open most of the day, uh, and they, they would have been, there was much less privacy, more of a communal feel, uh, but a closed door, though, meant a desire for privacy. So in that moment, if the door was closed, specifically then at midnight, then you would think they were trying to get some sleep, obviously. So the, lar- the typical house, though, in those days consisted, in my understanding, of one room And very often, everyone in the family slept in this room. And the families were large. Very often, they were all sleeping in the same room together. At wintertime, they probably had a stove going in the middle of the house, or they had a fire, and they were trying to stay warm. Um, But they would sleep in the same room with each other. And if you're a parent, you know the joys of trying to get your children to stay out of your bed when you're trying to sleep. You know what it's like to wake up... Children are creatures of the night, okay, in more ways than one. We have some that have roamed a lot in our house. We had one who, when she was about three or four years old, would come and stand right next to, I'm laying down, she would stand right next to the bed and just stand there and stare at me. And I could feel the presence and wake up and there's this child, this apparition that I can't see clearly and it would terrify me. A shot of adrenaline through my body, and now I'm awake the rest of the night. She would just stand there. And, you know, we have, we have had some children, you know, when they're in this certain stage of life, Aaron and I would, we'd go to bed in twos, but we would wake up in threes, or maybe sometimes in fours. Who knows? And not only do the numbers change from the time we go to bed till the morning, but a child is not content to find a small, unoccupied corner of the bed in which to sleep. They must be in the middle for warmth. The only way I know how to describe it is with my son is the, has been the worst, and he's over this for the most part. Now, don't be embarrassed, bud. They know. <laughs> the way that I can describe it is the letter H. I'm on one side of the bed about to fall off. My wife's on the other side of the bed, and Jason's in the middle perpendicular with his feet on my back, his head on mom's back, fast asleep, and we're about to fall off of our own bed. No, children have a tendency to find their way into their mom and dad's room. And now that's not what this is talking about. When he says, I'm in bed, my children are in bed. No, he's talking about the arrangement of the typical Palestinian house in those days. They slept in this room out of necessity. It was usually a small house. There's so many in the room that if someone is knocking on the door and trying to get someone's attention and dad gets up to go to the door or take care of some kind of business... They're not going to all sleep through it. I mean, very likely everybody in the house is going to wake up. And so here's the man and he's trying to borrow bread outside the door. And the friend inside the house is saying, it's not convenient right now. It is not convenient for me to get up and get you bread. I mean, my family, we're all sleeping. I'm sorry, I just can't do this right now. That's, that's the idea. That's the, the tension in the story. Verse 8. Jesus says, I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. So in the parable, Christ says, even though it's not convenient, your friend in this parable, in this hypothetical situation, uh, your friend eventually rises and provides. And and I was observing three, there are three things that I observed uh, in verse eight that that kind of helped me to understand a little bit of why this happened. And the first was that Jesus says, you're friends, you are friends because you are friends. See, when you have a personal interest in somebody, you want to help them. It may be inconvenient, you may not prefer, but you love them, you're concerned for them. You you don't want them to be in need. You wouldn't want them to be embarrassed because they don't have bread. And now this doesn't mean there's no cost to you. This doesn't mean that you're not inconvenienced. It doesn't mean that it's just an easy thing to do. But being friends sometimes means you put aside your preferences and your conveniences to meet a need. That's what happens here. Now, this is not the primary point. But part of being a good friend is a willingness to have it cost you sometimes. See, Paul referred to it as spending and being spent. You spend and you're spent over in 2 Corinthians. That means, so think about what that means. If you're spending and you're being spent, that means that sometimes you pull your wallet out and you decide the terms of what it costs you. But then there are other times when you're being spent and that someone else grabs your wallet and they are deciding what it costs you. Spend and be spent. Well, that's part of ministry. That's part of the ministry life. Sometimes you you are inconvenienced. Sometimes you don't get to do what you prefer to do in the moment. That's part of being in the ministry. It's also, and I say in the ministry, meaning we're all in the ministry. We're, we're, We're all meant to serve God, and we serve God very often, most often by serving each other. That's part of life in the ministry. If you're going to teach a class you are, at times are going to be spent. If you're, going, if you're going to help somebody else along in their Christian faith at times, you will be spent. They're the ones taking your wallet out of your pocket and putting money on the table they are spending. It's just the way it goes. Your inconvenience. We have a lot of people around here, and I'm not going to get into all this tonight. It's really not the point. But I just want to show you that sometimes because you're a friend or because you love somebody... You're willing to be inconvenienced, even though it's not what you prefer. Friendship costs, it does. Don't begrudge it because being friends with you has cost someone else at times. Ministering to you has cost someone else at times. And that's good to hear in our day and age when everything is about our rights and everything's about our conveniences and we want everything the way that we want it. But listen, for you to have a friend, there are friends in your life and you don't even know it, but them being your friend at some point in your life has cost them something. Them ministering to you at some point in their life has cost. And that's kind of the idea when he says that he will rise and give him because he's his friend. The second observation I have here is the friend answered because of importunity. And importunity means shameless persistence. You ever met somebody who was shamelessly persistent and they just would not give something up? I I could use my children as fine examples of this character trait as well. Shamelessly persistent. They have importunity. Um, When when they want something as a child, um, then they don't want to stop until they have what what they're asking for. Usually it involves food. It's a snack. They want something or to do some specific activity or they want to have a friend over. Children are great at shameless persistence, importunity. Now, the implication here is that you knock until they finally answer. You knock until they get you what you want. And at this point, your friend inside the house is probably a little bit annoyed, maybe a lot annoyed at this point. If you've knocked long enough, chances are at this point the whole family is awake. Remember, if this was the typical home in those times, they're all sleeping in the same room. They're all disturbed. So the, your friend inside the door, if you knock long enough and you wake all of his kids up, he can't use the excuse that his kids are going to wake up anymore because you've already woken them up. They're all up. They're all awake. And that's, that's kind of the idea of importunity. It means that you don't stop until there's an answer. And I've heard this preached before, and I've heard people talk about this passage as a way to teach us something about prayer. And they'll say, well, this is the attitude that we should have when it comes to our prayer lives. This is the lesson to be learned in the passage. We ought to be, we ought to have importunity. We ought to be persistent. We ought to be perseverant. And listen, I think that it's biblical to be persistent in prayer. Let me just say that we're told to pray consistently and persistently. And I've used this verse a lot lately. It's on my mind. Philippians 4, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. But it says, be careful for nothing in everything by prayer and supplication. That does not give the idea that you just do it every once in a while. In everything. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. That means that you don't give up. You keep praying. You're in an attitude continually, an attitude of prayer. James 5.16 says, The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Effectual and fervent. That does not sound like half-hearted praying. It doesn't sound like it's something you do a couple times, and then you're done. No, effectual, fervent prayer. Ephesians 6.18 says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Listen, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints you can't tell me that the bible doesn't teach that we ought to be persistent in prayer it does we ought to be persevering in prayer we ought to pray in all things we ought to pray at all times we have commands and examples that we should pray fervently continually passionately and with great resolve we should but i don't believe that's what this parable is teaching I don't believe that this parable is a picture of the benefits of persistent, shameless importunity. See, we we start to see why, maybe based then on what we see in the rest of verse 8 and toward the end. Look at the rest of verse 8. It says, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. So the idea here is that the friend inside wakes up, and he doesn't just give him a piece of bread, he meets the entire need. He doesn't just wake up and say, okay, you know what, I have three loaves of bread like you asked, but we need something for breakfast, so here's a half a loaf for your friend, and we're going to eat the rest for ourselves in the morning. No, he wakes up and it says he doesn't just give him part of it, he says he gives him as many as he needeth. And I believe that the point really starts to give the mindset that Christ is trying to teach here. You see, this parable is not about persistence. Although, again, that's important in prayer. But we're not supposed to force God's hand because he he gets weary of us asking. I mean, that would be like saying that even if God says no, you just keep on knocking until he says yes, bless God. I don't think that's what's being taught. The story is not telling us to batter down God's door until we get all the answers that we want. No, this is less about the friend practicing importunity, and it's more about the friend that's being woken up. See, a parable, is, is, it means to lay alongside. It means that you, take a, that you take a story, or in this case, a hypothetical story, and you lay it alongside a truth. And that parable does one of two things. Either it, it shows how alike these things are. In other words, there's a story here. Jesus is trying to, trying to teach a truth. And the parable, can, if it's laid alongside, it starts to show you how alike they are. Or, if there are other places, other parables that do this. There are times where the parable is laid alongside the truth. And it's not there to show us how alike they are. It's there to show us a contrast. It's there to show us how, how contrasting the, the truth and the parable are. And I really believe that's what's happening here. See, this parable doesn't show much, so much show us the likeness of the friend who's trying to sleep and God as much as it is showing the contrast between the friend who's trying to sleep and God. So Jesus takes this truth and he lays it alongside. And his point is, I want you to focus on the guy inside that's asleep. And he doesn't want to wake up, and he doesn't want to help. But in the end, he is basically forced into helping his friend. Well, that story or that parable is trying to reveal something to us about God. Here's the point that I believe Christ is making. He's saying, you have a friend who's human, and he wants to sleep. He's in bed. His family is asleep. He does not want to be disturbed, but he's your friend, And you're persistent. So he gets up. He goes to the pantry. He gets not just a loaf, but the three loaves, or however many you asked for, that you requested. And he comes to the front door, and he meets your need. Now, it may be not even out of sincerity. Maybe he does it because he's tired of you banging on his door in the middle of the night. Maybe he's just trying to get you out of his hair so he can go back to sleep. But so then here's the twist that Christ is making. Here's the contrast. If an annoyed, listen, listen. If an annoyed, unwilling, weary householder can be pressured enough and almost forced by his friend to give him what he wants in the middle of the night, how much more will your loving father supply all of your needs when you ask him? See, the point is not be persistent. No, the point is if a guy that's annoyed and tired and half asleep and his whole family is going to wake up, if you can be persistent enough and you can be annoying enough to get your friend out of bed to bring you bread, how much more will a father who loves you beyond your comprehension be willing to, to meet your needs? It's a contrast here. We're seeing a contrast. God is not some rude, bothered, half-asleep friend who doesn't want to mess with us in the middle of the night. No, He's our Father. And that's the point Christ is making. He's our Father. I mean, when my children... um, There are times, and I'll admit, there are times when my kids come in the middle of the night, and I at times admittedly have pretended like I was still asleep hoping that mom would wake up with them. Confession is good for the soul. There have been times I didn't want to get up. But there have been plenty of times when my children come in and they really do have a need, and I have absolutely no problem waking up because I love them dearly. I want to help them. If they come in and they're sick and, and they don't feel good or they're scared, I want them to feel better. I want to meet their needs. Now, I'm not saying that there's no conflict. There are times where I'm like, I just want to stay in bed. But here's, here's how we know this is Jesus' point here. Because look at verse 9. He says, And I say unto you, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. If we are to believe what the the point of this passage is, the point is not ask. The point is not seek. The point is not knock. No, the point is it shall be given. The point is ye shall find. The point is it shall be opened. It's not about our persistence as much as it is we have a loving Father. If your bothered friend would do that for you in the middle of the night... Don't be afraid to go to your father who loves you dearly. You can seek him. You can knock on his door. He doesn't sleep. He's going to wake up and he will provide your needs. Verse 10, for everyone that asketh receiveth and he that seeketh findeth and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Again, the point is not knock, seek and ask. Should we ask and knock and seek? Should we? Yes, but the point Christ is making is not be persistent. It's if you ask, you have a father that's always awake. You have a father who loves you so much, he's not going to let you come to the door and just sit outside in the cold without meeting your need. Verse 11 and 12. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? I hope not. Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? No, he won't. A human father would not cut off his child's true needs and instead supply him with something cruel. I mean, uh, there are probably human fathers, I know, that have, but that's not the typical human father. A typical human father, the normal human father, would not deny his child the need to eat and give him a stone instead. Even a human father, most human fathers are not that cruel. And here's the clincher then in verse 13. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to them to ask him? See, you are human and evil. You're not, here's what he's saying. Jesus Christ says, if you're, you're evil, I mean, be, be careful of thinking that God or Jesus Christ doesn't just kind of call it like he sees it. You know, he is a God of love, but he's not afraid to call us what we are. He says, if ye then, to the disciples, if ye then being evil, you are human and you are evil is what he's saying. You're not like God. You are sinners and you're capable of some pretty low level stuff but even you love your children enough to provide for them when they need it. And then then the three most important words in expressing the contrast between us and God, he says, if you, evil ones, can do that, and that's how you treat your children, how much more? How much more will your father provide for your spiritual needs when you ask him? God is a much more God. He's so much stronger. He's so much more capable. He's so much more able. He has so much more authority as king. He so much more deserves the glory when we pray. But, but listen, what makes him that much more is even though he's all those things, he's also our father. And he is deeply and sincerely interested in our lives. He wants to meet our needs. He wants to give us all the spiritual help that he can provide. It would be one thing to have a father who could, but wouldn't. And there are fathers out there. There are fathers out there who could provide what their children need, but they just won't. There have been plenty of earthly fathers who could have but they wouldn't, and that's pretty low level right there. But it's to be expected, Jesus Christ said, if ye then being evil. I mean, that's how probably many fathers could be if they let themselves get there. But we have, here's the contrast again, we have a father that not only can provide for all of our needs, physically and spiritually, but he wants to. We have a father who could and would If we were to simply humble ourselves enough to ask and seek and knock, how much more would God give us what we need and even just at times just what we desire? How much more would he do that than an earthly father would? See, now this doesn't mean we shouldn't pray with intensity. That's not what I'm saying. I gave you a good balance. I gave you lots of other verses that show we should be persistent and we should be intense and we should be fervent. We're told plenty of times that we should. But this does mean that we, are never, we never have to approach God with the view that we're forcing his hand to take care of us. We don't have to come to God and think, if I don't pray hard enough, he's not going to meet my needs. When my children come to me and they need something, I don't hold it over their head like, oh yeah, ask me again. No, get on your knees this time. I don't hold my position of authority and power and provision over their heads. Because if they come to me in humility, uh, and I've had this happen many times in my children's life, when they come to me, I mean, tears on their face. In humility. And their spirit in that moment is, Daddy, I don't know what else to do. I don't have anywhere else to turn. Nobody else can help me like you can, Daddy. Will you please help me? And as being evil, I might would say, get on your knees and say it. But I don't. Because as their earthly father, that's how much I love them. Okay, well then listen, how much more? How much more? And I can't even begin to think I really can provide for my kids' needs. I need God's help in everything. But here's a God who is all-powerful, omnipotent. He is the sovereign, and he deserves all glory, and he is sincerely interested in me when I pray. I don't ever have to feel like I go to him, and I've got to pray hard enough, and I have to be, you know, get low enough. I mean, I should be humble before God, but I never have to go to God and pray thinking I've got to tug those gifts out of his unwilling fingers. That's not how it works. We have a Father who knows our needs better than we do, and He always only deals with us out of a heart of boundless love. Man, if we don't receive what we hope for, it's never because God is a could-but-won't Father. It's never that. If we pray and don't get what we ask for, it's because He has something better for us. See, remember, he's a much, how much more father. His his answered and even unanswered prayers are always about how much more. How much more I have for you. How much more I want for you. How much more would be better for you. So you have a father who loves you that much more. And I just want to point out as we close here that of all the things that Jesus Christ chose to expand in his instruction on prayer. Of all the things that he told, that he expanded in his instruction, you know, things like, when you pray, um, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sin as we forgive those that are indebted to us. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Of all the things that he chose to expand and expound upon and, and talk further about, it was the very first pray, phrase when he said, when you pray, say our Father. That's what he wanted to remind the disciples of. Of all the other things that are important in prayer, if we miss the fact that we have a how much more Father, then we're not praying like we should. The how much more Father that you have, that should be the first thing you think about when you pray. It should, it should, it should color every request that you have. How much more when I pray to remember that if my father gives me good gifts and he's evil, how much more (laughs) will my heavenly father give me those things that I need on a spiritual level? And tonight there may be somebody here and you're thinking, well, I, I really have a need and I've been praying and God just isn't giving it to me and I've got to pray harder, and I've got to open pry those fingers open because I really need this. Well, no, if you are approaching him in humility as you ought to, you don't have to convince him to love you as your father. He already does. And it could be that what he's doing in answering your request or not answering your request right now is because he has something better. So how much more God is always looking to give us more than we expect, more than we can dream? More than we think we need is a how much more, Father, don't miss that point when you pray. Let's pray. Father, we want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.